Tim, thank you very much indeed for that uh, kind in introduction. Um, we have had a great time working together, actually, and, and still do. Um, still, uh, Tim is still on the board of ISIS um, and, and a great source of <coughs> advice and support to me. Um, I, I'm delighted to see so many of you here. I noticed in the program that we're competing with um, Alice and Harry Potter tours of Christchurch, um, a circus skills workshop, and the vice chancellor's questions. Um, but I'm assured those last two are different events. Um, <laughs> As it says in the program, I'm here to talk about the university business interface. Um, but before I sort of dive into all of that, I'll just tell you a little bit more about uh, who, who I am, although Tim's sort of given the introduction. Um, for the last couple of years, I've, I've been the MD of ISIS and, and worked at ISIS since two... Well, do come down to the front. Good idea. I'm doing, I'm sorry. The, the music's still on. Could it's you take technician it on the way? Okay. Um, but before that, I'd worked at Bristol, and before that, I'd worked at University College London, um, and then did a, a degree in geography. So I've spent 19 years um, in this sort of space between universities and, and business, um, looking at how universities interact with business, but always from the, uh, the, the university side. Um, and in many ways, this activity really only began to take off in the UK at about the mid-1980s, 1985, when there was a change in some legislation and universities were allowed to commercialise their own research outputs themselves. Uh, you, there were two years when you were in the finance sector. Yes, it was 1986. I'd finished a, a degree in London. It was a sort of height of the Thatcherite city boom. Um, so I took a job in the commodities futures market and um, had a great time for a couple of years until I began to realise that there was potentially more to life than um, cars, flats and other people's girlfriends. And, and looking at um, you know, my colleagues aged 40, etc., I, I wondered, did I really want to be still doing that in 20 years' time? So I decided, no, I didn't. So, so I, I, I stopped doing that and made quite a big change. And I'm delighted I did, because it's far more fun working between you know, universities and business than um, getting fired from Lehman Brothers. <laughs> as, as Tim said, um, I mean, it, t Tim and I worked together very closely. Um, Tim joined ISIS in 1997, and, and the story of ISIS that, that we'll tell really is the sort of the story of ISIS that Tim built, because the, the first decade, the university was putting relatively little resource into the company. So there was relatively little happening. But from 97 onwards, with Tim's arrival, um, some great things have begun to happen. And, and Tim's background um, is, is far more relevant than mine. He, he was an investor in businesses. He was managing director of technology companies. And, and he was a real scientist as well. So what we've, we've had is we've had this mixture of um, uh, you know, business experience and university experience, which has helped place Oxford really on the center of the map for how you do uh, university business interactions. Um, what is ISIS? Well, ISIS Innovation Limited is a company 100% owned by the university. 
Um, very important to sort of make that point that we only have one shareholder. It is the University of Oxford. We don't have competing pressures from external shareholders. Um, and we do three things. Um, first and, and foremost, in a sense, for what we were set up to do, um, we are the university's technology transfer office. We exist to help transfer technologies that come out of the university's research base from the university out into business. Uh, more recently, we set up a group called Oxford University Consulting, which is a little bit different. It sells the expertise and time of the researchers at the university, um, as opposed to this, which sells their intellectual property. And then most recently, three and a half years ago, we set up our own business called ISIS Enterprise, where we're selling our own expertise in how you do university business technology transfer to other universities, um, but also to businesses, because there's a, we know a lot about managing intellectual property, licensing, raising small amounts of cash into businesses, writing business plans. So we now um, have a team which sells that expertise to clients uh, for profit. So that's what we are. Um, what am I going to talk about? Um, the university business interface um, and some of the, the obvious but Im important to recognize differences between what universities are and what businesses are um, make the point that it's quite difficult to do what we're trying to do but not impossible um, and then talk about some examples from uh, Oxford um, and then explain in, in a bit more detail some of the technicalities of, of how it works. Um, and as I go along I, I'm very happy, in fact, welcome you to ask questions, uh, interrupt, either for clarification or, or for challenge, whatever you'd, you'd like to do. Good. Um, so what is the role of a university? I think this is an absolutely fascinating question. D different people have, have different answers to that one. Um, fundamentally, I think it's the dissemination of new knowledge. Um, and that's conventionally done by teaching uh, and research activities. Um, generally, to anybody in an open and free way. So I think that's the, the, the absolute essence of, of what a university is. Sometimes that dissemination of new knowledge is done through commercial routes. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate activity for a university to get involved in. The balance between those two might be quite interesting and something people think about. But it's perfectly legitimate activity. But universities don't actually exist to commercialise research. Um, it's legitimate they do, but it's not really what they're there for. Um, so in our opinion, it's not actually sensible to try to commercialise the research inside the university. Because universities are good at teaching and research, but they're not good at commercialising research. So you don't want to do that inside the university. Clearly universities are an amazing source of technology. Um, Oxford University, to, to pick the relevant example, um, last year, or actually year ending uh, July 2007, managed to spend £346 million on research, and I think for the year ending July 2008, that figure is closer to £400 million. This is an enormous amount of research spend, which creates sort of billowing clouds of intellectual property, some of which is commercialisable, and some of which is done by people who are interested in commercialising it. Um, that research spend, if you compare that to UK companies spend in uh, R&D spend in the UK by companies, Oxford University actually ranks 12th. So there's only 11 organisations in the UK spending more on R&D than Oxford University. 
Very interesting. And ISIS is the fourth highest filer of international patent applications in the UK. So we've got the University of Oxford as a really powerful R&D machine and ISIS as part of the university as a very significant player in commercializing the research that comes out of that. But it's an important point to bear in mind, I think, which is that technology, this stuff that's created, technology is actually a cost. Um, as we've said, the university spent a lot of money uh, on research, that's a cost. We spent last year 1.3 million pounds on patenting, that's a cost. So these are costs the university has to bear. Um, and you don't actually make money out of technology, you make money out of a business that successfully commercializes it. So we're looking after this whole lot of technology, which is a cost to us. So what we want to do is we want to transfer that out to people who are able to commercialize it so that uh, we can get some um, benefits from transferring the technology out and uh, generate some income for the university. So what is the role of business? Um, well, businesses exist to make money for their shareholders, almost exclusively. Um, I put that in because some businesses do slightly different things. But, um, and some of those businesses choose to do this by commercializing technology. By which I mean simply that, you know, Tesco's isn't trying to do what we're trying to do. Um, but some businesses obviously are in the technology game. Um, and it can be a really profitable plan. It can also lose people money, but it obviously can be successful. So how do we get these two different things working together? Universities existing for, for their reasons, business existing for its reasons. Um, it makes sense to work together because we're a supplier and a source of technology and business wants technologies to make cash out of. Um, and we do this in lots and lots of different ways. The two things that ISIS really concentrates on, we license technology to existing businesses. Um, and we set up new businesses, the so-called spin-out companies, um, that commercialize the technology that's come out of the university. And there's many other ways as well in which universities interact with business. So um, companies fund research at the university, and we'll look at that in a moment, and also consulting, which I've mentioned. So there's an incredibly wide range of ways in which Oxford is engaging with the outside world and the bits of that that you could describe as business. But fundamentally, universities and business are as different as chalk and cheese. And remembering this, I think, is incredibly important and helpful when you come to do our job. They're different, and ne neither is one trying to be like the other. Um, it's, universities are there for their thing, business is there for their thing. And so when people comment about, oh, isn't it a shame that, that, that you know, universities should really engage with business more, well, well hang on. You know, why? If a university is there to do teaching and research, let's not take that as a completely natural assumption. I think it's good that they do in some ways, but you have to bear in mind uh, that they do actually exist for different reasons. And remembering this is incredibly helpful when you come to actually engaging with them. What we really exist for and what they really exist for. And it's difficult. Um, why should universities want to engage with business uh, and, and vice versa? Well, I think for the university, it's part of the dissemination role without doubt. And, for the, um, and they may make some money out of it. For the business, they may make some money out of it. So it does actually fit the primary purpose of the two organizations. Um, so it's difficult, but, but not impossible. 
And I'll now talk more about what's going on here in, in Oxford. So a little bit on research in Oxford. Um, there's 4,200 researchers, another 6,700 doctoral students at the university. As I said, the highest university research spend. Um, and also, the university has been voted as the most powerful UK research university, the most innovative UK uh, university uh, as well, which is always good to get that external uh, validation. Now, that 346 million quid, that comes from um, 98 million from a block grant from the government to help support the research infrastructure. And 248 million represented here comes from research grant applications and proposals and contracts that researchers write asking for research support. And you can see about a third comes from the UK research councils, um, about a third from the charities dominated very much here by the medical charities, dominated very much by the Wellcome Trust, which I think last year provided the university uh, a little short of £50 million, pounds, an enormously uh, significant contributor to, to the university's research activity. And then various other sources, including industry. So here you can see industry um, investing £30 million pounds in research at Oxford. Um, very substantial contribution, um, but as a proportion of the whole, either sort of more or less than 10%, depending at which of those figures you look at. How that spread across the university's divisions is quite interesting. Um, the university is currently organized into four academic divisions, um, medical sciences, maths, physical and life sciences, social sciences, humanities, um, and the rest. Um, and you can see an incredible dominance in terms of where the money's going on the sciences and very, very strong in the medical sciences, partly because of the high capital cost of those activities, but partly just because of the volume as well. One of the great strengths of Oxford, which you, you will ap appreciate having been part of it, um, is the incredible breadth of research activity that's going on here and the incredible opportunities for interdisciplinary work. So across those four divisions, um, you've got you know, the, these areas here, but also the opportunity to work across. And so you've got scientists developing new technology, internet technologies for example, you've got social scientists studying how the internet is affecting human behaviour and how we're in interacting with it. So amazing opportunities for bringing people together across the spectrum of research, and no better mechanism for doing that than the colleges. Um, and there's some really good examples of, of researchers in different disciplines in the same college chatting and coming up with good ideas uh, about how to commercialize technology and what sort of research to do. Can now, yes. Yes, I mean that that is is referred to as a as a block grant um, and you know, go is spread across the university's departments to support infrastructure, equipment, uh, facilities, sort of not you know core research activity. I don't have that data. It's probably available in the university. So here again, the four university divisions. Um, and just to make the point that we're not the only bit of the university involved in innovation and entrepreneurship. And we work very closely with um, the Science Enterprise Centre here in the business school, which puts on lots of awareness raising events about um, what is entrepreneurship, what is a business, for everybody in the university to come and listen to opportunities for taking their ideas and being 
entrepreneurial with them. Um, also the Begbrook Science Park, um, located halfway out to Woodstock, which the university acquired about 10 years ago, and is home to a, a real mixture of research activity and new business activity. So there's a, a science uh, research park uh, out there as well. So, to, having looked at the, the university, to come back to, to ISIS again in a little bit more detail, um, as I said, wholly owned by the university, established 21 years ago. And our sort of ethos, if you like, our philosophy is that we exist to help researchers who wish to commercialise the results of their research. This only works if we're sufficiently competent to provide a service to researchers such that they want to engage in commercialization. They're very busy teaching, they're very busy doing research, and if they're really good at both of those, they get to do lots of administration as well. So they're pretty occupied. So this activity, which is not necessarily core to their um, reasons for being at the university, is an add-on. So we need to make it as easy and, and beneficial as possible so that they want to engage in it. And it's absolutely core to what we do that. Um, and people have said some nice things uh, about us as well. Um, and this one I like from um, Barry Bloomberg because it, I think it is this point that we do understand what a university is actually all about, which is why we can set tech transfer uh, in the right context. Um, and I've already mentioned the, the uh, patenting activity. We had our 100th US patent granted in 2007. So again, just a measure of the fact it's, it's quite a substantial activity now. These are our staff. Um, we have uh, central admin. We have the tech transfer group, uh, Oxford University Consulting, and ISIS Enterprise here. And in terms of interacting with business, the project managers here and here, these are the, the key people. And you'll, you'll notice that the vast majority of them have a PhD in science. And that's very important to us because it means we've got a, a set of staff who understand about technology. They, you know, having done their PhD, they understand an area of science in incredible detail. They understand science generally broadly. But perhaps more importantly, they understand the research culture. And so when researchers from the university come to us, they're talking to somebody from their world. So it makes it easier. But also, they're having done their PhDs, they've gone out into business. So they've gone to work in sales, marketing, business development for technology-related businesses. So they understand the culture of the customers that we're trying to sell our technologies to. So a very impressive and, and very important um, workforce in terms of understanding the, the two worlds that we're interacting with. And, and there are various ways of, of representing this. This is taking um, the idea that here we've got these two axes initially, where we've got the academic axis uh, and the commercial axis, and we're operating between these two. Um, now, the academic world takes other people's money and spends it on research. Um, the commercial world, some of it, likes to take in new research and products and turn that into money. Different things. So we operate between these two, um, and that's essentially a sort of licensing transaction where we're taking some university intellectual property and we're licensing it or selling it to <coughs> industry. So we need to understand how these two things work. But there's more to it than that because um, when we're doing a spin-out company, we're also dealing with the investors. And investors exist for different reasons than business exists. Um, their objectives are to take some money and turn it into lots more money, which is actually different to what's going on in business. 
Um, so we also have to act as three-dimensional intermediaries um, when we do a spin-out transaction. And it's having people who can operate in those three dimensions <coughs> that, again, lies at the heart of what we're doing. We understand university, we understand business, and we understand finance insofar as that's possible. In terms of our activities, um, the, the sort of financial uh, basis of, of the business is that each year the university sends us a sum of money which we invest in patenting. And um, as you can see, for that five-year period, then this four years, and then from now, the university has sent us a million pounds a year, 1.2 million. And the university has just actually doubled that amount to 2.5 million pounds from this year onwards. Because, as we'll see later, the more you put into this activity, the more you get out. And when I say the more you get out, that's both in financial terms, but also in terms of actually having an impact, um, making sure the university's uh, outputs are, are taken up and, and used. So the staff have grown, the number of projects, we've currently got about 1,000 projects open. Last year we filed 68 new patent applications on Oxford inventions. And so we've got this, all of this activity, and we can look at the returns that the university gets from providing us with that patent budget. Um, and as, as many of you have already noticed, the, the uh, most recent annual report and newsletter are down at the front. So do take a, a copy of that. It's got a lot more financial detail in if, if you want. Um, so the, the university sends us money for patenting. Um, and it gets in return certain financial returns and non-financial benefits as well. And some of those financial returns uh, are in cash and some of them are in asset value. So um, as we build up the, the portfolio of spin-out company shareholdings, it might sell some to get some cash, but it's obviously got the asset value of the portfolio as well. Um, and you know, roughly speaking, if you include all of these activities over the last eight or nine years, the university's put in about nine million and got back about 90 million. So that's a very substantial return. Now, w w one key aspect of that, which I'm going to come on to, to mention, um, is these strategic IP deals that we've done. But before I do that, just to make the point, this is not all about the money. This is really about making sure that the university's research activities are taken up and commercialized and, and made use of. So the strategic IP deals that we've done, I, I talk about these because they're absolutely fascinating, um, and, and a very innovative example of something happening in Oxford. So in 2000, we did what we call the, the, the chemistry deal. Uh, when I say we, this was mainly the head of chemistry at the time, Professor Graham Richards, uh, and his contacts with, with investors. So Oxford needed uh, a new chemistry building costing £60 million. The university had £10 million. The government was running a scheme where it said it would pay half, so the university was faced with a 20 million pound hole. So Graham and a chap called Dave Norwood got together and uh, Beeson Gregory, now known as IP Group, or the bit of it that does this, paid 20 million pounds to the university to get in return half of the university's interest in chemistry and spin-outs and licenses for 15 years. Then in 2006, because this had been a success and had been proven to be a good model, um, the university wanted to set up its Institute for Biomedical Engineering. So, again, 
we wanted a new building. The university had saved some up but needed 12 million quid. So we did a deal with a group called Technikos um, where they paid 12 million pounds for half of the university's interests in biomedical engineering, spin-outs and licenses, for 15 years. I put 15 plus because it was actually from the time a building opened, so it was more like sort of 16 and a half years. Um, and the net result of these is that the universities had 32 million pounds um, to build new research buildings uh, from its IP activity. And our partners, the investment partners, only get a share of what the university gets, so the researchers' interests aren't affected. So researchers still want to get involved and engaged in this activity. The story of the spin-out companies that have come out of Oxford is enormously impressive and absolutely fascinating. The story really starts back in 1959 with the formation of Oxford Instruments by Martin Wood. And you can see there was one company every few years um, until ISIS really began to grow when Tim arrived in, in 97. And you can see the numbers began to pick up. These companies were really the result of the sort of entrepreneurial zeal of a researcher, an entrepreneur, an investor getting together and making things happen. ISIS was there, but with little resource, uh, unable to support all of these activities itself. But with ISIS's growth, we've managed to help researchers set up a whole lot more new companies. Um, so as, as you can see, um, and we've already noted the sort of fluctuation in numbers, um, these are actually calendar years, the previous ones were year ending March. Um, but a, a portfolio of 60 new spin-out companies in the last 10 years, in which the university owns shares, they all come from... An, very different parts of the university, but a lot from chemistry, perhaps as a result of that deal that we did, quite a lot from zoology, for reasons you wouldn't necessarily expect, but also engineering. Um, and they're all based on Oxford science and Oxford scientists. And we play a, a key role in putting these companies together. From a financial point of view, um, this portfolio has raised a total of £334 million of investment finance. Um, 34 of that is from the first round financing that we do um, from seed investors, business angels and venture capital and then 300 million from follow-on venture capital and institutional investment. The ones with an asterisk here, these have uh, floated on the uh, London Stock Exchange alternative investment market. So that's one way that they're looking to get their exit for their investors. But yes, yeah, so, so there's some serious money has been, been made out of this. And I'll look, talk about aspects of that in a moment. I've just got a few examples here which I, I thought would be um, interesting. I, I'm sure there's a very wide range of interest in, in the audience, so I've got a wide range of, of um, subjects to, to touch on. This is a project that was featured in the Guardian newspaper um, a couple of weeks ago that we haven't yet spun out. This is an example <coughs> of a technology that's been developed at Oxford University um, that we've patented, that we're trying to create a new business around. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a um, tidal turbine technology, um, which looks a bit like the blade of an old-fashioned lawnmower. Um, and the idea is that you attach this to the seabed here and here, so it's sort of longitudinal, um, as opposed to the conventional tidal turbines, um, which just look like wind farms underwater. And, and the point of this is that you can get a lot more uh, longitudinal um, capture of, of tidal flow in both directions. 
Um, so a very exciting technology developed in the engineering sciences department here and we're currently trying to raise about a million pounds to get that into a new business to, to get that going. Um, but there are lots of Oxford stories that get in the press. They get in both the, the, the national press, but also in the, um, the sort of the trade press. Um, so some software coming out of Comlab, um, some articles that we put together to promote the existence of the sort of the, the, the Oxford cluster of um, technology businesses and the role the university plays in uh, taking those forward. Um, some international articles um, about the various life sciences technologies we're promoting uh, and then the extent to which you know the FT is interested in how you can actually go about making money out of university technologies and the role of Oxford uh, and the Thames Valley as a source of, of technologies. One of the spin-out companies Natural Motion Limited set up a few years ago um, came out of the zoology department there was a guy in the zoology department who'd done a computer science degree and was learning about how, um, in zoology, learning about how uh, bodies work and, and are put together. And so he used those two skills that he had to develop some software, which is now used in um, computer games such as Grand Theft Auto and movies for animation. It makes crowd scenes a whole lot easier and cheaper to put together. So I don't know if any of you have come across Grand Theft Auto. You may not want to admit it if you have. Um, some, our, our children have it, exactly. We know nothing about it. Um, strikes me as being a particularly unpleasant game in which some nasty Eastern Europeans go around America killing people. Um, but you, you'll rest assured it's all based on Oxford technology. Um, um, Sunscreen as well, so there's a company that was spun out from Oxford called Oxonica and it's a nanotechnology company. It's a lovely example of, of the point I made earlier about the, the colleges acting as a, as a catalyst for, for um, new inventions. So a, a chemist and a materials engineer, both at Queen's, um, chatting one day thought, hey, you know, I've got a problem, we might be able to help solve that, etc. And a few years later, we've got a listed company called uh, Oxonica, which has developed a new sunscreen technology uh, called Optisol, which you can go out and buy in boots the chemists. And the point about this is you put it on once a day rather than three or four times a day. But it's not all about um, computer games and, and suntans. Um, this summer, we put together a, a very substantial deal uh, to commercialize a new TB vaccine that is being developed in the university. So the, the story here is that the sort of leading candidate for the next generation of TB vaccines to, as a boost for the BCG um, the leading candidate, by which I mean the one most advanced through trials so far, has come out of Oxford University. And we patented that technology a few years ago. And it was an absolutely fascinating technology to work with because TB obviously is a disease which affects people generally who haven't got very much money. So it's all this issue about how do you get the access to medicines uh, for people in developing countries who need them. So we needed to work with the not-for-profit sector. But also, TB is a condition that's spreading into um, more developed countries as well. So we've done a, a very innovative deal by which we've set up a new joint venture company with a, um, 
a vaccine business called Emergent um, and one of the not-for-profits who are looking to develop um, TB uh, vaccines called ARAS, which is based in, in New York, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what was interesting about that was the way that we could bring together the commercial interests and the non-commercial interests in a new joint venture company so that we can get this Oxford technology out to market quicker. Now, just to, to finish, how does all of this sort of work, work in detail? Um, well, we've got a very clear policy here in the university that the university claims ownership of all employees and students' IP resulting from their research activities. Now, if that's all we did, I think there'd be trouble. So, as well, the university then provides ISIS to help commercialise the IP that comes out of university research where the researchers want to do that. And then when successful, the third leg of this policy, if you like, is that researchers then share in the benefits. So when we license out some technology, researchers get a share of the royalties. When we do a spin-out, they have shares in the company. And when they're doing consulting, obviously they keep most of the money. When we do licensing, the university has this set of rules as to, to who gets what money. So we the, the, the model, if you like, is the research will have been done in the university, the university owns it, it transfers it to us, we patent it, we then license it out, the licensee pays us money, and we first recover the patent costs, then we keep 30% to cover our costs, then we send the rest back to the university, who shares it between the researchers personally, who get all of the first chunk, this just pays the tax on that, um, the university keeps some centrally, and the host department where the work was done uh, receives a share as well. When we do a spin-out, all those examples that we looked at across an incredibly wide range of, of technologies, they've all tended to follow the model represented here. And this isn't a set of rules by any means. This is just sort of what generally happens, where you've got a, a, a head of a research group, let's say the professor, um, and he or she will stay in the university. Members of his or her team might well move across into the new company, but we're very keen to make sure that, except in very rare circumstances, neither of these people run the company because they probably haven't got the necessary expertise to do that. There are some very good examples where, where it has worked, but it's the exception, not the rule. The reason being that in a university, life looks a bit like this, and in a business, life looks a bit like this, and it's very hard to go from one culture to the other. So what we're doing in ISIS is we're building the business plan, um, and we're trying to get the, the, the science and the scientists together with the money and the management. So we're looking for new managing directors to run these companies, uh, and we're also looking for cash to put into the businesses. So where does the cash come from? Um, well, we run a very small seed fund, a £4 million fund, which was created by grants from the government uh, back in 1999. Uh, a brilliant scheme by which the government said, with the Wellcome Trust, for every pound you, the university, put in, we'll put in three. So the university put in a million, we could create a £4 million fund. And we've been able to invest that in projects from the earliest stage, sort of pre-commercialisation, right through to investing up to a quarter of a million pounds in the first round of, of an investment. Um, and also, we run the ISIS Angels Network, 
which is the network by which we bring together all interested parties who want to invest in these companies, which includes angels, seed, venture capital, etc. Um, and we organize events by which we, um, often in, in, in this room or here in the business school, which we present technologies to rooms full of potential investors um, and uh, with a view to trying to get cash into the business. Our view on this is, is and it's an analogy which I like very much, it, it's, here, here we have a picture of a pier. Um, and if you take the view that, that we're this side um, and business is over here, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build um, out to reach business, but we don't want to build peers because if we just build out from this side, we invest some of this seed fund, quarter of a million pounds, and we build a very nice 250,000 pound pier, but we haven't actually built a bridge across to the other side. So we always want to co-invest with business investors coming across so that we can build the bridge and get the technology across it. And this is one of the things that we see um, some other organizations make this mistake of just pumping public sector cash in without actually engaging the interest of business. So we always want to get business involved from the other side. In terms of the, the investment profile in some of these companies, um, e each color here represents a particular spin-out. And so the, the height of the bar is the amount of money they raised in an investment round. So you can see here that to take uh, this company here, uh, Tolerex, um, they've a biotech company, they've gone out and they've raised a whole lot of cash in different investment rounds. Take Natural Motion that I mentioned, this little company here, as a software company, they've raised relatively smaller rounds. Um, so we work with these companies helping them develop, um, well helping them raise their first round and then you know, get involved in supporting them as they go forward as well. But it's not all just about forming new companies, we help researchers sell their time as well um, and so Oxford University Com Consulting helps clients from around the world find experts in Oxford who could help solve a client problem and also helps researchers find opportunities to sell their time and we've worked with a host of international organizations. Not surprisingly the expertise of Oxford University's researchers is world-class and uh, it's one of the amazing things about Oxford. You sort of rest assured there's somebody within a couple of miles who's going to know everything about something. Um, it, it does lead for a, for a lazy mind oneself but it, it's an extraordinary place to, to, to operate. Um, and then we set up uh, ISIS Enterprise um, the third division where we're working with other universities and, and governments who want to stimulate the knowledge-based economy in their own countries, um, but also businesses who want some support in realizing they're not managing the um, intellectual property within their business as well as they could be, so we come in and help with that. One of the contracts we have is with the uh, UK government's Carbon Trust, where we're helping um, incubate and develop low-carbon technologies from um, throughout the UK, so not just Oxford-based. It might be individuals, it might be businesses, it might be other universities. And one of the things we do, just to uh, uh, give an example, 
is we help other businesses, in this case um, a Japanese company, Toto Frontier Research, we help them launch their technologies into the European marketplace. So if, if you're in Japan, you've probably heard of Toto. If you're in Europe, you probably haven't. So what we're doing is we're helping uh, identify potential licensees for, for their um, self-cleaning anti-fogging coating technology. Here you can see the wing mirror of a car um, after rain, where this bit's clear because it's got their coating and, and, and this bit isn't. Um, so you know, an, an example of how, you know, from Oxford, we're going out and working with international businesses to help them commercialize their technology. So just finally, to, to, to look at this in, in the round and the aspect of, of networking. We're bringing together all sorts of different elements to make this happen. Um, and initially in, in the university, what is it that you need in a university to be good at this? And um, first and foremost, you need support from the research base. You need support from the head of the university um, and the senior researchers. You need high volumes and, and, and uh, quality of research, and, and as I hope I've demonstrated, we've got that here in Oxford. Um, you need very clear policies about who owns what, um, who's going to get what, um, and what's going to happen if there's an argument, because there will be some. You need a research services office managing the relationship between the research funders, um, and you need access to proof of concept funds so you can stimulate early stage technologies by helping provide cash to build a prototype or, or develop um, more data to support a patent application. And then you need a strong technology transfer office. In business, depending what sort of business activity you're involved in, um, well, if you're doing spin-outs, you need a good community of business angels. You need seed and venture capital for the follow-on investments. Um, you need entrepreneurs to run the businesses. Um, and then professional advisors, uh, lawyers, accountants, bankers, commercial property developers, who understand how to put these transactions together as quickly as they can uh, and as effectively as they can. And then for licensing, you want a whole bunch of really innovative technology companies that you know around the world who might uh, license in Oxford technologies uh, and develop them. And you need business networks to do that effectively. So one model that we've, we've looked at for this is, is the idea um, of, so this is one for the biologists really, developed by a friend of ours at UCL. Um, take this idea of, of one university represented here and within the cell you've got um, the, the administration, the tech transfer office, um, most of the researchers sometimes, but then the gene pool of commercially active researchers, those who want to get involved in this activity. And so this is, is the world that we live in here uh, in Oxford. Um, but really, the world we live in is an ecosystem. So let's say that's one university, but universities collaborate with each other. So there's interactions between different universities. Um, and there's this whole network that I've mentioned of investors, lawyers, headhunters, patent attorneys, etc., all of whom are part of this ecosystem as well. Um, supported by brokers, managers, consultants, um, and students studying it and, and, and helping it move along. So you have a, a, a very complex and dynamic ecosystem in, in which we operate. And this, if you like, is a sort of physical manifestation of that ecosystem um, as a, a prize for whoever can recognize the dining hall uh, 
No, no it's right. some of them. No, it's not John. <laughs> Trinity. Um, so this is Trinity College uh, Dining Hall, and uh, three times a year we put on a really big business networking event. Um, uh, <laughs> the chef at Trinity is absolutely brilliant. We do go elsewhere. This picture is Trinity, that doesn't mean we always go to Trinity. Um, yeah, I mean, the food at Trinity is outstanding, actually. Uh, uh, I thought they might be an investor. We have strong links with Trinity. Um, <laughs> so there's about 140 people here, and um, they've heard a, a business lecture, they've heard a technology lecture, and then we've brought them to, to Trinity uh, to, to have dinner. And um, there's university researchers, there's um, heads of R&D from industrial companies, there are investors, there are patent attorneys, there's everybody interested in helping innovative activity take place in Oxford. And there's ISIS there helping um, make sure that um, as much commerce is conducted as, as, as possible. And about halfway through we blow a whistle and half the people move around. So for the second half you get a chance to, to try and buy or sell something to other people. And they're absolutely brilliant uh, events. Um, and, and as I say, a, a great example of, of taking that theoretical model of, of an ecosystem and, and actually uh, putting it together here in Oxford. This is another example as well, in a way, in, in that this is the Begbrook Science Park, um, uh, halfway out to, um, to, to Woodstock. Um, and as you drive in, there's an old farmhouse which has been converted. But then there's a range of buildings, state-of-the-art research facilities and premises for new spin-out companies, or companies sort of spinning in from other business areas to, to work, uh, uh, to benefit from being connected with the research base. Now, government's got a role to play in this as well, um, and they do that by providing tax incentives, um, they do that by um, providing grant programs to support tech transfer and to support businesses who want to do this sort of thing. The way governments procure um, is very interesting. If you're an early stage technology company, the chance of the government buying something from you is roughly zero unless they do what they say they're going to do, which is be more in innovative in their procurement practices. And what we really want from government is a support, clarity and, and consistency, but I think we can probably rule that out for a while. Um, <laughs> What's really going on, and, and this I think is, is the final picture, is, is this is a slide Tim developed about 10 years ago I think, but it's still true, um, is, is culture change. Um, it's still evolving and changing. Um, we've got the university entrepreneurial culture developing, we've got the business and professional environment developing, by which I mean they're more aware of the opportunities coming out of the research base than they ever were. And we exist in between these two, between the, the chalk and the cheese, um, trying to get these two groups to interact in as effective a way as they possibly can, um, so that really good ideas from here get invested in and benefit all of us. And there are some examples from uh, around the world where this, if you don't have one of these, uh, if you don't have an ISIS, quite a bit of this might happen, but in a fairly chaotic way and not necessarily to the benefit of the university. If you do have one of these, it's better organised, more happens, and the university benefits more. 
and inevitably we have a website um, which uh, explains all of what I've been talking about in, in a lot more detail. So I'll, I'll finish there and thank you very much for listening.